Chapter Seventeen of the Man with the Black Cord by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Where the Blow Falls. About an hour after the catastrophe in Rose Cottage, General Manager Plone had already eaten his lunch and was back in his office. He had not taken up the burden of his work yet, but sat leaning back in a comfortable armchair, reading a paper and smoking. His servant, Wilhelm, hurried in with a card on a salver. "'This gentleman wants to see you at once,' said the man. Plone looked at him in astonishment and asked, "'Why, what is the matter? You're shaking all over.' "'It's so like him, sir, and yet it isn't him,' stammered Wilhelm. Plone shook his head and touched his forehead with one finger. "'There's a screw loose with you somewhere,' he said, laughing. He looked at the card before him. It bore the name of Joseph Mueller. "'Show the gentleman in,' said Plone, laying aside his paper." The manager was prepared for some surprise after seeing his servant's bewilderment. He watched the door with interest, but when it opened and his visitor entered, Plone himself appreciated what had happened to Wilhelm. The man who stood before him was an inch or so shorter than Hartman and weighed considerably less. Also, he was quite differently dressed, but apart from this the resemblance was astonishing. Plone put his hand to his forehead as if fearing for his own brain now and looked down again at the name on the card. Joseph Mueller, Joseph Mueller, he murmured, I never saw such a likeness before. Nor did I, said Joseph Mueller, in Hartman's voice, as he closed the door. The manager, who had risen at the other's entrance, sat down again and stared up at his caller, and seemed too bewildered to find words. May I sit down? asked Joseph Mueller, pulling a chair near to the desk. Please do, murmured Plone, wondering to himself, whether he were not taking his afternoon nap at the moment and dreaming all this. Then Joseph Mueller spoke. It was under the name of Robert Hartman from Poland that I enjoyed your delightful hospitality. Then you are not the man you let us believe you to be? questioned the manager slowly, as if trying to understand. Mueller put his tall hat down on the edge of the table, unbuttoned his black coat, and took a portfolio from his pocket. From this he drew a large card and handed it to Plone. This is who and what I am, he said. Plone looked at the photograph on the card in the official statement of the police department that accompanied it. His face was very grave as he handed the paper back to Mueller. Then you are a detective, he said. Yes, I am a detective. I think I need not tell you that I came here to investigate the Erlock case. I imagine that was it. But my chief, the baron, knows who it is that he sent to me? Naturally, I could not have come without his assistance. This may be some excuse for my presence here. You need no excuse, Mr. Mueller. You are a welcome guest, and you have endeared yourself to us all. Mueller bowed and pressed the other's hand warmly. And now I have come to thank you for all your kindness, your sincere cordiality. Plone looked down at the little man before him, whose face was so grave and who seemed struggling to suppress a sadness which threatened to overcome him. Then are you going away? the manager asked. You have not been successful here? They're going to send another detective? I am going away because there is nothing more to do here. What do you mean? I mean that Erlock's murderer has been discovered and is already in security. At last! Oh, but wait a minute. I mustn't be the only one to hear that. Let's go over and join the ladies. Plone rose from his chair, but Mueller shook his head. Please sit down again, Mr. Plone. I cannot tell the ladies what I have to tell you. Why not? Please, won't you sit down? There are moments in the lives of all of us when we have the instant recognition that something terrible is nearing us. We do not know what it is, nor from what side it is coming, but we know that it is coming, 
and that it is something horrible. For the first time in his life the robust, good-natured, and easy-going Plone realized that such a moment had come for him. He sat down, drew a deep breath, and looked up anxiously at his visitor. "'I could not tell your sister especially, not at least until you know,' said Mueller low. Plone bent forward in his chair in evident excitement. He swallowed hard several times, then spoke with difficulty. "'What? What do you mean?' "'It is you who must tell Miss Suzanne.' Mueller, too, was hoarse. "'I, I don't understand you,' murmured Plone. "'Oh, yes, you understand me perfectly well. "'Mr. Hartman, Mr. Mueller, I left Rose Cottage less than an hour ago.' "'It's some mistake, some horrible mistake,' gasped the manager. "'Unfortunately, there is no mistake possible here. "'Sergius. Sergius is not his name. "'Maximoff. That is not his name.' If it is thought that he killed Erlock, it is known that he killed Erlock. Then he did it in anger. He is easily aroused and passionate, and he is so strong a death blow might be given before he thought it. It was a murder, a carefully prearranged murder, a crime that was carried out with the same care, the same cleverness, and the same daring as the, as the plone's icy hand caught at Mueller's fingers, scarcely less icy. His eyes seemed starting from their sockets. Mueller finished his sentence as were the other crimes that he has committed. Plone tried to speak, but only gasped. For he is the man with the black cord. Plone's face was ghastly, and on Mueller's brow the great beads of perspiration stood out. He wiped them away, then he continued, sadly, You see how I am obliged to reward all your hospitality, but I have one comfort for you. A comfort? How could there be any comfort here? Maximoff is insane. Plone looked up, startled afresh. "'Is that not some comfort to you?' asked the detective. He did not know whether Plone had even heard him. The poor man sat there frozen to stone, looking out into blankness with eyes that were dumb in grief. In this horrible moment he first realized how fond he had grown of Maximoff. Then he thought of his sister, and a shudder ran through every fiber of his robust frame. For he realized that it was he who must tell this girl, so dear to him, this woman happy in her love, dreaming of how a few weeks more would make her a happy wife, he must tell her that the man she loved was the monster who had held the entire neighborhood in terror for so long. When he realized what the truth had meant to him, the strong man, he shuddered to think of the crushing blow it would be to her. He groaned aloud and covered his face with his hands. He sat thus for many minutes, and Mueller, too, was quite still. He understood the other's suffering, and he gave him time to recover from the first shock. It was very quiet in the comfortable little office. A soft hum of distant noises came from the direction of the factory, but within the room nothing was heard except the ticking of the clock and the deep, gasping breath of the stricken man. Finally, Plone raised his head and straightened himself up in his chair. He had conquered the first dreadful moment of the shock. A certain frozen calm came into his face. Now, now you can tell me what you have to tell. His voice sounded hard. Mueller told his story. He told of how he had received the first hint when he saw the picture of Napoleon, which Maximoff had shown him as one of his art treasures, and of which he already knew that it had been in Erlock's possession up to two days before the latter's disappearance. He spoke of the visit of the detective Grang at Rose Cottage and told the story of the journey to Russia. He described his visit to old Andreas Maximoff in Wenden, and that it was there he had first heard about Nikolai Simarenko. 
which was the true name of the man who was betrothed to Suzanne. Old Maximoff had told him much of the past of this nephew, and had told him also that Simarenko came of a family in which the trait of insanity was hereditary. When he reached this part of the story, Plone gave a sigh of relief. "'Oh, thank God, thank God!' he exclaimed. "'Then at least he is not responsible for his terrible deeds.' Mueller nodded. "'You are right,' he continued. "'Nikolai Simarenko is an unfortunate man. His mind is held in bondage by a terrible delusion. Listen now. He knew of the hereditary taint in his blood, and even as a youth, although he was strong and well, he suffered tortures in the thought that he might fall a victim to the curse.' to the curse that weighed so long upon his family. He took up the study of medicine, hoping that through his knowledge in this field he would be able to save himself from the threatened disaster. It was natural under the circumstances that the specialty to attract him should be mental alienation. He was an excellent student, too much so for his own good. About twelve years ago he and his cousin, whose name he is now bearing, took their degree at the University of Vienna. Then they both returned home. Sergius Maximoff brought his own people the good news that his cousin Nikolai had returned to his home in the best of health and spirits. Then the real Maximoff went on a tour of the world and settled in South Africa, where all news from him soon ceased. Nikolai Simarenko remained in Russia, married and lived happily with his wife for about three years. He devoted himself to his studies, alas, too deeply. He had always been well-to-do, and now, through a legacy he had become a very rich man, but he did not spend his days in the usual enjoyments indulged in by other rich young men. He was always of a reserved disposition, and he became more so as time passed on. He had few friends and seemed interested only in his studies. He and his wife traveled much until Sonia was born. Then the young couple were obliged to remain at home, for Sonia's mother never recovered her health after the birth of the child. Her husband scarcely left her bedside. He sent for the most renowned specialists from St. Petersburg and Berlin, but none of them could bring relief to the sufferer. It was he himself who finally put an end to his wife's pain. She was found one morning in her bed, strangled. Around her throat was a bit of black cord which had literally put an end to her suffering. The family curse had fallen. The hereditary insanity had broken out in Simarenko. There was no doubt about it, for he himself quite calmly acknowledged that he had deliberately killed the wife whom he loved more than anything else in the world, because he could not bear to see her suffer. He was proud of what he had done, and who shall say that his pride was altogether unjustified? It was this attitude of his that seemed so abnormal to those around him, and they committed him to an asylum. I visited this asylum, continued Mueller, and I soon convinced myself that it would not take any great cunning to escape from it. Simarenko had been there scarcely a year, before he got away, doubtless helped by a judicious use of money. On the night of his flight he stopped in at his own house, took his little girl, and the two disappeared from Russia. How he ever managed to pass the frontier with the child will perhaps never be explained, and there is something else equally important which is equally likely to remain a mystery. He had no immediate relatives, and when he was put in the asylum the state took charge of his fortune. To the surprise of everyone, there was no money there, his entire fortune seemed to have disappeared entirely. The narrator paused and took a sip from a glass of water that stood on the table. "'Had that anything to do with Maximoff, I mean, with that man's insanity?' asked Plone. Mueller shrugged his shoulders. "'What I think,' he replied, "'is that Maximoff—I cannot get away from the name either—utilized his various journeyings to invest his fortune quietly in some other country. 
Russia is very uncertain financially as well as politically, and his actions in this respect would seem to show a sane and normal mind. Was he insane when he killed his wife? asked Plone again. Again the detective shrugged his shoulders, and he answered this question with another. Is it a sign of insanity when a physician decides to end the suffering of a patient whom he knows to be in acute pain and incurable? Again there was silence in the room until Mueller took up his story. Since his flight from the asylum, all knowledge of Nikolai Simarenko was lost in Russia. But the physicians of the institution have not lost interest in their unfortunate colleague. I did not tell them the reason for my inquiries, for I wanted unbiased information. I called myself a former Viennese acquaintance of his, who came into that neighborhood by chance, had heard of Simarenko's sad case, and now wished to know more about it. One of the physicians, a kindly elderly gentleman, told me that Dr. Simarenko's insanity was of an unusual sort. It concerned one corner of his brain alone, as it were, and as such it might be considered as having started fresh with him, although he said it was not possible to doubt the existence of an inherited inclination to mental abnormality. But it was fear of the dread fate, his ardent wish to escape it, his hot desire to shield himself through knowledge, the mental overwork and constant occupation with one train of thought, these were the stages of the journey made by Simarenko until he reached the dread goal of broken nerves and outspoken insanity. Psychiatry and its allied branches of study had made Simarenko a madman, and the worst misfortune that befell him was that while in Vienna he had had as a classmate a Hindu student with whom he had become warm friends. This man taught him to believe in the doctrine of the transmigration of souls. Oh, yes, yes, he used to speak of it sometimes, threw in Plone. Has that anything to do with his madness? A great deal. It was the most important factor connected with the crimes he has committed here. Please tell me what you mean. As a natural connection with his studies of psychology, Nikolai Simarenko came to take a great interest in the soul of the criminal. I don't know whether you have noticed that there were so many books on criminal psychology in his library. He himself told me on one of my visits to Rose Cottage that what interested him most along the wide field of medical science was what the unthinking mass called the sinister perversities of the human soul. Even then his expression, as the unthinking mass call it, struck me, for it was evident that he did not consider himself one of the mass. The old Russian doctor in the asylum told me that while he was there, Simarenko openly avowed his admiration for several of the famous criminals of history, those types of men who had learned to kill for the pure joy of killing. Oh, this is terrible! Ezzelino di Romano, Nero, and men of that stamp seemed to be the ideal of this gifted young man who in his normal moments represented the best type of warm-hearted and highly intelligent modern scholar. He also took the greatest possible interest in that half-mythical character, the court jeweler Cardillac, who is said to have lived in the time of Louis the Fourteenth and to have perpetrated a long series of mysterious crimes. What seemed to particularly interest him in Cardillac was his love for strange and odd pieces of jewelry. He seemed to believe that the souls of these great criminals of history entered by turn into his own in his sick moments, and ordered all his doings, for which he was not otherwise responsible. One of the patients in the institution wore an odd and beautiful ring to which Simarenko seemed greatly attracted. The man was found dead in bed one morning, and his ring missing. At first the cause of death was not apparent, but at the autopsy it was discovered that a tiny nail was driven deep into the victim's skull. After Simarenko's flight from the asylum, the missing ring, also a miniature portrait of the head doctor's son, were discovered in the mattress of his bed. 
Oh, this is terrible, terrible, cried Plone, shuddering. Yes, it is, indeed, terrible, repeated Mueller. And I think it was high time that the man was discovered and rendered harmless. High time for Miss Suzanne and for his own little girl, Sonia. Plone looked up with a horror in his eyes that seemed to rob him of words. The detective continued. Those earrings which Simarenko gave Miss Suzanne. You remember, he said, that he brought them from Russia? They had formerly belonged to Erlock. You remember my excitement at the moment? I had found a description and a drawing of the jewels among the dead man's papers, and the earrings themselves were not in his cabinet, nor was there any clue to their whereabouts. With his mania for murder, Simarenko combined a tendency here and there to make away with property of others. But it was never for any other reason than to obtain some cherished art treasure, or in some cases, to make up for the niggardliness of his victim. I don't understand. What do you mean? On my secret visits to the greenhouse, explained Mueller, I found reason to think that about twenty thousand crowns were missing from Erlock's capital. I learned accidentally that immediately after Erlock's disappearance, Maximoff had given forty thousand crowns to endow two free beds in a Viennese hospital. Yesterday I made an official investigation of this matter and discovered that one of the beds was registered under Endowed by L.E. and the other N.S. Old Erlock, as you know, was very close with his money and anything but generous. His murderer set the old miser a monument which the other scarcely deserved, and at the same time he gave a neat little sum out of his own property. But I must say that I did not like his giving his future wife the earrings which had belonged to his latest victim. Yes, yes, I understand. I feel the same way myself. But are you sure, absolutely sure, that those were Erlock's earrings? Yes, there is no doubt possible. They were a very odd design, and besides the description and drawing, which I told you I found in some of the old family papers, you can see another picture of them yourself in the family portrait hanging in the drawing-room of the Erlock house. Have they, have they found Erlock's body? Yes. Simarenko had buried it in his garden. Then they have arrested him already? Plone sighed deeply as he spoke, and Mueller's voice was sad as he answered the question. They took him away about two hours ago. Just before I came here, the commissioner, who remained in Rose Cottage some little while after the arrest, told me he had made interesting discoveries in the little room which the doctor called his photographing darkroom. It was used for this purpose, but for other purposes as well. In a cupboard in this room, the commissioner found a long dark cloak with a high, stiff-lined hood in which holes were cut out for the ears, also several pairs of gloves of remarkably fine and flexible kid, and boots with very high heels and heavy soles, which were fastened into felt slippers. Also, there was a little strong box in the cupboard, which contained a paper missing among Erlock's securities. And something more was found there, a big coil of horsehair lariat, bits of which we have already seen. Oh, yes, yes, the black cord. Why did he use that in his crimes? Who can tell the vagaries a sick soul may have? He had bought a lariat once as a curiosity for his collection of foreign weapons. The strength and flexibility of the narrow cord seemed to appeal to him, and it was with this that he strangled his wife. It became afterward a sort of a fad with him, a vanity, as it were, that he should leave his trademark behind him whenever he had committed a crime. But I still don't understand why none of us ever recognized the man's condition. Just think how often he was in our house, how intimate our friendship was. But you told me yourself that you had never seen much of him until he became interested in your sister, and that you were never really intimate with him until the two were engaged. This is but little over two months now, I believe. 
Yes, you are right, said Plone. Before that he lived like a hermit. None of us really knew anything about him. And madmen of his stamp are wonderful actors. It is hardly to be called acting even, for I feel assured that in the man's normal moments he had but very little realization of what he did when the fit was on him. His really unusual and well-trained mind asserted its sovereignty even in his hours of madness. Therefore, all his crimes were carefully planned and carried out with an audacity which proved the man of great intelligence. It did not seem possible that he could sit and talk to us so calmly about these very crimes if he were always, when normal, conscious of what his other self had done. And in his normal moments he was certainly a man of most unusual ability and charm, one of those rare beings whom one does not meet very often. Yes, that's what makes it so dreadful, cut in Plone. I have seldom seen a man who combined so many good qualities. All the more terrible that such a brain should have been overthrown, continued Mueller. In fact, it did not occur to me that the man was actually mad. When I first began to suspect him, I thought myself obliged to believe him one of the greatest criminals of modern times. Then one day I happened by accident to see the title of a well-known book on criminal psychology, and I remembered its contents, which were well known to me. There have been other cases similar to his, but they are to be found at rare intervals. I myself didn't realize how terrible they could be until I had it brought home to me. "'You're going already?' asked Plone hastily, as Mueller rose from his chair. "'There are some more details, which might interest you,' said the detective, "'but we can postpone the telling of them for another time. I am very tired now, and I must make up my official report.' Plone realized that his guest looked tired, and he touched the bell on his desk. "'Let me order you something to eat,' he said, going to the door as the attendant came. They sat in silence until the tray was brought, and as Mueller ate the cold meat and drank the wine, it seemed to restore and rest him. Plone waited on him anxiously, with a request in his eyes which he dared not yet make. Mueller looked up suddenly from the tray and remarked, "'One thing I must tell you in justice to my valet Carl, who is not my valet but a professional assistant. I did not dismiss him from my service as I had to tell you that I did. I wanted to get him out of the way so that I could send him on the Russian journey with Simarenko.' "'You feel better now, more rested?' asked Plone, handing his guest the box of cigars. "'Yes, thank you. I think it was partly hunger, although I am tired. But I generally find that I can keep up when there is something to do. If your profession brings you many such experiences as you have gone through today, it must be hard on mind and body.' Mueller sighed. "'Yes, this did touch me deeply. I had grown very fond of the man. It's this fool heart of mine that gives me so much trouble.' It steps in when I want to be most professional, and if it doesn't actually lead me into doing unprofessional things, it makes me suffer, as I have done today. It's just this kind heart of yours, and your wide experience, that makes me—that gives me the courage to ask something of you. Plone spoke hesitatingly, as if trying to find the words. Mueller looked up without answering. Plone took a fresh start. I want you to help me, to help me tell Suzanne, he almost groaned. Oh, no, no. Yes, you must. I am helpless here. She is all I have left besides my own family. She is very dear to me. I am awkward and clumsy. These things are beyond me. I don't know how to put it so that it would not kill her at once. You would know. You have been through so many cases of suffering and sorrow that your own work must have brought about. She likes you and has confidence in you. She knows that you liked him. You must tell her. You must help me tell her. 
Plone's voice sank to a pathetic note of pleading that was touching in the contrast of its helplessness with his robust frame and fresh, wholesome face. Mueller paused a moment, then rose heavily and slowly from his chair. "'Very well, then,' he said. "'If you wish it, I will do what I can.' Plone seized his hand and wrung it hard, stammering incoherent thanks. Together the men walked from the office through the covered passageway to the house. As they entered the cheerful sitting-room, Suzanne was there alone, sewing at a window. She sprang up and came to meet them with a merry welcome. "'Why, this is delightful. I hardly expected you to this hour of the day. Why, I beg your pardon. I thought it was Mr. Hartman.' "'It is the man you have known as Hartman,' said Mueller slowly. "'But what? But you are so different today. I don't understand.' Suzanne turned her eyes towards her brother as if to ask explanation from him. When she saw his drawn and haggard face, she gasped, pressed her hands to her heart, and then exclaimed, low, "'Oh, what is it? What is the matter? What is it?' The keen-sensed girl felt that some tragedy was in the air. All the gloom of the presentiment that had been hanging over her for the last week or two, in strange contrast to her usually sane and wholesome nature, came back with a rush. It had disappeared the last few days. Her lover's return in such good spirits, their mutual happy plans for the approaching marriage, all the sweet preparations for it that mean so much to a true woman, had served to restore Suzanne to her usual habitude of looking on the brighter side of life only. But at this moment she passed through the hideous ache of anticipation that had a short time back so crushed her brother's more material spirit. Suzanne was a woman of character and accustomed to self-control. She did not cry out now, but stood there quietly waiting. Plone put out his hand, and she laid hers in it, drawing close to him and looking up in his face. Suzanne, he began, trying to control his own emotion. This gentleman whom we have known as Mr. Hartman is the detective Joseph Mueller. He has been our guest because his professional duty demanded it. Detective, here on duty? He came to find the monster who has terrorized our neighborhood, whom he himself called the man with the black cord. Suzanne drew a step off from her brother. A sound that was almost like a short laugh came from her lips, so great was her sudden relief. And you have found him? she exclaimed. Oh, yes, you have, I see. But I don't see why, why you should both look so upset. What's that to you, Richard? It seems to have touched you. Was it, was it one of your men? No, not one of my men. Well, who was it, then? Who was it? Was it someone we knew? Why, you ought to be glad that he is found, that our homes here are safe once more. It was someone we all knew, began Plone haltingly. Oh, who? Who? Again the black pall of some approaching evil seemed to sink down on Suzanne's heart. Mueller came a step forward and spoke. Miss Plone. This man with the black cord, who is the perpetrator of all these mysterious crimes, including Erlock's disappearance, Erlock's murder, I should say, is not so much a criminal as an unfortunate. He is a madman. Madman? asked Suzanne. Oh, how terrible! And we have had a madman in our midst all this time without knowing it? Yes, without knowing it, said Mueller, and I myself was as much surprised by the truth as any of you could have been. But who is it? Who? Suzanne's insistence bore a note of fear. Her brother took her hands again and drew her in the shelter of his arms. "'Why, Richard,' she continued, "'I'm not so frightened. I'm no weakling, you know. Of course the thought is unpleasant. 
but now that the man has been found we are quite safe why you foolish boy no one suspected the truth said muller in the moment's pause that ensued because this madman in his lucid intervals was one of the most remarkably intelligent and attractive men i have ever met suzanne had been looking at the detective even as she spoke to her brother now she turned her head to look at the man whose arms still encircled her protectingly a low inarticulate note of fear broke involuntarily from her lips as she saw her brother's face richard who is it who is he talking about what is it that you know why do you look so horrified why do you hold me so who is this man he is talking about tell me do tell me plone only held her closely and looked helplessly at muller you will have need of all your courage miss suzanne said the detective to bear this shock which is to come to you it has almost crushed your brother he has not yet recovered this madman was dear to us all and to you very dear to you to me her voice rose to a higher note to me she repeated oh here she glanced at them both again a quick comprehending glance oh my god not not yes said plone very low it is he sergius suzanne scarcely breathed the name as she swayed in her brother's protecting arms oh no 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 oh it is ridiculous i don't believe you you are both gone crazy it is you who are madmen her brother only held her tighter as muller spoke very gravely no it is no mistake unfortunately this man who had won all our hearts this highly gifted man of great talent was the victim of a taint of hereditary insanity which took a homicidal course suzanne gave a low moan and covered her face with her hands she would have fallen had not plone held her tightly my poor suzanne he murmured my poor dear girl let me think she said very slowly i can't grasp it then if he did all these terrible things oh but i can't believe it i can't you must dear said plone it is only too true but then hereditary insanity you say then he was not responsible no thank god no explained plone his better self the man we loved scarcely realized what he did in his moments of madness is it not so he turned to muller with a look of pleading yes i believe it was so said the detective it made the horror of what i had to do a little less poignant you you did it suzanne shook herself free from her brother's arm and straightened up then you came here to hound him down you came to us under a false name to watch him oh it was cruel cruel muller shook his head sadly and plone took his sister's hands be just dear he said he has done only his duty and he has saved your life possibly what his first wife died plone did not finish the sentence but suzanne understood with a scream she threw herself into his arms again and buried her face on his shoulder shuddering violently he did it to end her sufferings she was in great pain and her malady was incurable said muller quickly feeling the horror in the girl's soul he knew it was only a question of time he was a physician and he ended it this crime at least terrible as it is in our eyes has much to excuse it because he loved her so greatly came in smothered tones from suzanne yes because he loved her so greatly repeated muller then his love at least was not madness the girl continued mechanically tonelessly no that was genuine as were all his good qualities suzanne wheeled round suddenly where is he now there was a sudden unnatural calm about her 
They have taken him to the city. To prison? No, to the asylum. I must go to him. My place is at his side. He loved me. If my love is of any value, it must show itself now. Take me to him. No, no, dear, you must not think of it, murmured Plone. Your presence would be of no good to him just now. It might only serve to excite him dangerously. Again she broke from her brother's retaining grasp. But I must. It is my duty. There is another duty which calls for you, said Mueller, that poor little girl, now doubly orphaned, so terribly orphaned. Sonia! Poor little Sonia! Then she, too? She, too? Yes, she, too, was in danger. Mueller completed the sentence, which the girl did not dare think out. Oh, it is horrible! Let me think. I must have time to think. Suzanne stood between them, looking at them in another moment of deadly calm. Then, suddenly, even before her brother could catch her, she fell to the floor unconscious. End of chapter 17